can be found on page 543 of the Pew Bibles and on page 820 of the large print Bibles. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one on enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Mind. Heavenly Father, would you take the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts, and would it be a pleasing offering in your sight? Amen. Straight into Psalm 2, which describes a mighty struggle. Heaven and hell are contesting, the battleground is earth, and we make no mistake about it at all. We are right in the middle. Psalm 2 is a real firecracker of a psalm. How many of you knew it was the most quoted psalm in the New Testament? All the hands cuff, of course. Okay. Well, it is. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, which seems rather odd because at face value, Psalm 2 looks to be all about King David and his coronation. It seems to be predicting the opposition he will experience as king and looking forward to the eventual defeat of his enemies. But read more closely, and this psalm speaks massively into the spiritual state of our world today. In fact, Psalm 2 has a compelling and urgent message for us all that is both messianic and missionary, which was why it was really great to hear from Tim and Hannah this morning and to hear about ways we might be able to support them. How does Psalm do that? Psalm 2 does that by talking about one who is far greater than David, someone who is going to inherit all the nations. And there are several phrases which give us a clue. Let's have a look at verse 7. You are my son, today I have become your father. Not even the highest angels could warrant that affirmation. 
And Hebrews 1.5 confirms, confirms that verse for us. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or I will be his father, and he will be his son. So you see, just as that title was inapplicable to David, so it could never be said of David that God would make, as it says in verse 8, the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Moreover, the expression in verse 12, kiss the son, implies an act of divine worship. Verse 12, kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. So do you see, Psalm 2 describes not earthly, but heavenly things. Let's have a look at verses 2 and 3 again. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Hang on to that because that's a key thing we need to know about. But of course, who is the Lord's anointed? Well, history shows us that this psalm was understood to have messianic significance well before the coming of Jesus, which is perhaps why Psalm 2 is quoted by the apostles Peter and John in Acts, by Paul also in Acts, by the writer of Hebrews, and by John in Revelation. Why? Why was Psalm 2 so important to the early church? Well, Psalm 2 was so important to the early church because in it they recognized a beautiful prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus. And it's a prophecy that is as much for our times as it was for theirs. So what was it that they appreciated so much and we can rediscover this morning? Well, in just 12 short verses that Richard read so beautifully for us, there are four profound prophetic truths. Let's have a look at those four truths. Resistance to God is foreseen because Jesus is hated by the nations. Rebellion against God is folly because Jesus is king of kings. The rule of God is proclaimed because Jesus is judge of all peoples and repentance to God is wise because Jesus is a refuge to all who seek him. So let's, let me quickly take you through those four prophecies. Resistance to God is foreseen because Jesus is hated by the nations. Have a look at verses two and three. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. You see, Psalm 2 is all about this mighty spiritual battle. Heaven and hell are locked in combat and the battleground is earth. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, writing at the height of the Cold War, saw it this way. This is what he said. But the fight for our planet, physical and spiritual, is a fight of cosmic proportions, not just a vague matter of the future. It's already started. 
The forces of evil have begun their decisive offensive. You can feel their pressure. Yet your screens and publications are full of prescribed smiles and raised glasses. What's the joy in that, he said. So, do you see, from the very beginning of this psalm, we're hurled headlong into this conflict. Resistance to God is foreseen because Jesus is hated by the nations. Let's have a look at this chap. Around 290, anybody know who that is? Diocletian, the Roman emperor Diocletian, around 297 AD. He was so confident that he'd eliminated Christianity from the Roman Empire, he had two great big pillars raised for himself in Spain. And this is what was inscribed on them. Diocletian, Jovian, Mazimaian, Hercules, Caesaris Augusti. For having extended the Roman Empire in the East and the West, and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the Republic to ruin. But not content with one monument, he had another one built as well. And this is what it said. Diocletian, Jovian, Mazamayan, Hercules, Caesaris, Augusta. Do you get the feeling he rather liked the sound of his own name? For having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ and for having extended the worship of the gods. Little did Diocletian know that within 40 years the entire Roman Empire would be declared Christian. Stalin, Stalin tried the same strategy in the last century and he had no more excess. And of course the irony is that his own daughter Svetlania became a believer. But you see, this kind of deliberate, premeditated rebellion against God isn't confined to atheistic dictatorships. Currently, something like 450 Christians a day are killed by faith-led regimes. For the first time in almost 2,000 years, there are no Christians left in Mosul. Verse 3. Let us break their chains. The chains of rebellion against God in terms of the influence on education began really as early as the 19th century with the compelling ideas of Freud, Darwin, Freudbach, and Marx. Because you see, each one of them called into question the idea of a transcendent moral law. As a result, the former president of Harvard said this, during most of the 20th century, first artists and intellectuals, then broader segments of society, challenged every convention, every prohibition, every regulation that cramped the human spirit or blocked its appetites and ambitions. He went on. They've made it clear that their prime enemy, their prime enemy is the Judeo-Christian tradition of metaphysics. With that destroyed, terms like truth, good, evil, and soil and soul can be discarded. Why is all this going on? 
Resistance to God is foreseen because Jesus is hated by the nations. But truth number two, rebellion against God is folly because Jesus is king of kings. Have a look at verses four to six. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. I have, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Notice from the verses four to six that Christ's rule is holy. Therefore, this is an unrighteous rebellion. His law is legitimate. Therefore, this is an unreasonable rebellion. And Christ's rule is omnipotent. Therefore, it will ultimately be an unsuccessful rebellion. Then truth number three, the rule of God is proclaimed because Jesus is judge of all peoples. Have a look at verses seven to nine. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. See, having heard in the first six, six verses what people had to say about Christ's kingdom, now the Messiah replies. Verse 7 speaks of a coronation, a promise first made to King David through the prophet Nathan, which you can read about it in 1 Chronicles. It says, when your days are over, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom. I will be his father, and he will be my son. It's amazing, amazing prophecy. Solomon, Solomon in all his glory, never fulfilled this promise, but Jesus did. By divine appointment, Jesus is the king of verse six. By divine nature, Jesus is the son of verse seven. And by divine inheritance, Jesus is the heir of verse eight. And finally, by divine rule, Jesus is the judge of verse 9. God the Father is speaking of when Jesus was publicly declared to be the Son of God. And that's something we, we can find confirmation for in Romans 1. Before the resurrection, the, the deity of Christ was largely a sort of hidden truth. It was glimpsed only occasionally by the disciples. You can probably think of those occasions. Do you remember when, when Peter answered Jesus' question, who do you say I am? Do you remember what Peter replied? He said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Those two titles, Messiah, and the Son of God are only found in the New Testament after the resurrection. But you see, the revelation was disclosed almost a thousand years before, right here in this psalm. Isn't that exciting? You see, that's why the, the psalmist could so confidently assert the end of the reign of evil, because Jesus is the King, He is the Son, He is the heir. He is the judge. This truth is not only messianic, it's also tremendously missionary. 
That's why Jesus echoed this psalm when he commanded his disciples to go and take the gospels to the end of the earth. And that's a command for us too. Resistance to God is foreseen. Rebellion against God is folly. The rule of God is proclaimed. And then our fourth truth. Repentance to God is wise because Jesus is a refuge for, to all who seek him. Verses 10 to 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry and your ways will be destroyed. Kiss his son. In these concluding verses, we're urged to respond to the Messiah. And the only hope for our world is Islam. Got your eyebrows raising that. The only hope for our world is Islam. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because, do you remember earlier in our worship, we sang, I surrender all, I surrender all. We sang it in English, but when Arab Christians sing the same song, I surrender all, they use the Arabic word for submission to God and surrender. And the Arabic word for submission to God and surrender is Islam. That's right. That's why the only hope for this world is to surrender all to Almighty God through submission to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must never give up hope. As George Bernard Shaw said, no nation, no nation has ever outlived its false gods. Then we come to verse 12. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. Submission is expressed in our willingness to kiss the son. It's a sort of kiss of reconciliation, a bit like the brothers Jacob and Esau when they kissed and made up. So what about this kiss? What, what are the aspects of it? Well, this kiss has three dimensions. Firstly, it is the kiss of submission to his authority. When Samuel anointed Saul, king of Israel, he kissed him as a sign of submission to the power that was now vested in him. And while we tend to recoil at the idea of, of submission, this is what we must do if we're to be honest and truthful when we call him our Lord. So the first kiss is a kiss of submission to his authority. Then there is the second kiss, the kiss of love for his sacrifice. The kiss of submission to his authority and the kiss of love for his sacrifice. In Bethany, shortly before his crucifixion, Mary expressed her love for Jesus when she kissed his feet and Jesus forgave her sins. So the kiss of submission to his authority is also the kiss of love for his sacrifice. The kiss of submission to his authority, the kiss of love for his sacrifice, and the third kiss, the kiss of devotion to his service. Both Job and Hosea describe how pagans worship their deities by kissing their images. 
when Paul was about to leave his brothers and sisters on the beach at Miletus in Acts 20, it says they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. In the Middle East, it's still tradition for men to kiss one another on the cheek as a sign of friendship and devotion. I'm still of the generation where I'm struggling with man hugs. <laughs> but that's, that whole sense of a kiss is very, very important. There's a sense from this psalm that we are very much to kiss the son in devotion to his service. A kiss of submission to his authority, a kiss of love for his sacrifice, and the kiss of devotion to his service. And by the sign of this kiss, we enter into the covenant of grace with God. And so finally, the last beatitude in this psalm, verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What fear and pride had interpreted as bondage at the beginning of the psalm is shown, in fact, to be our very security and bliss. Psalm 2, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, has a compelling message for us all that is both messianic and missionary. It leaves us in no doubt about the wondrous grace of God and the source of that grace, his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How we respond to that grace is something each one of us has to work out for ourselves. But Psalm 2, as we heard in Mike's lovely intercessions, Psalm 2 is also a warning to the nations not to ignore the grace of God forever. And while we can take refuge in Christ, who will indeed inherit all the nations one day, we should have no delusions that in the meanwhile, we are caught up in a fiercely contested spiritual battle. A battle that calls us to use the power of God's grace through us to fight for justice, to plead for mercy, and to confront those who conspire against the Lord. May it be so for his name's sake. Amen.